Thank you for downloading this episode of Software Gone Wild, a podcast focused on everything software defined. To get more episodes and explore other SDN and network automation resources, visit sdn.ipspace.net. Welcome to an autumn episode of Software Gone Wild. Today, we'll talk about new things in Linux networking coming out of the Linux Networking Conference last July. And with me, I have Rupa Prabhu that you know from previous Linux podcasts, Jamal Hadi Salim, and Tom Herbert. And as always, to keep me honest, there's Nick Buraglio who will ask all the network management questions that I always forget to ask. Let's start with Nick. Hi, Nick. How's it going? Oh, pretty good. Interesting days, busy, busy, but, you know, the usual. Understandable. Same here. I was talking with Dinesh that a while ago, and he was like, how are you doing? And I was like, I'm bimodal these days, going from overloaded to too tired to work and back. And his reply was like, oh, yeah, the normal. Yep, that's pretty much status quo. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's get this show started. Let's start with Rupa. Rupa, what are you doing and what brought you to Linux and what will you talk about today? Hi, Ivan. Good to be here again. I am at Cumulus Networks doing fun Linux networking things. I love working with the Linux networking community, mostly contributing to the Linux kernel. And yeah, NetDev Conference, we, a bunch of us from Cumulus are at NetDev every year. And it's been a really great uh, learning and fun experience to contribute and look at all the innovation that's happening in the kernel community. Okay. And then in alphabetical order, Jamal, what are you doing these days? Well, uh, from a Linux perspective, I've been involved in Linux one way or another for at least 20 years now, mostly very focused on the Linux kernel, networking, but various other things. From a day job perspective, I'm a CEO of a small company that I would say is a pioneer in the cliche called SDN, although we're not as famous as some of the Silicon Valley folks. Uh, So you're SDNing in the wrong part of the world. I'm in the wrong location. So what is your version of SDN doing? You may be familiar with forces. So our infrastructure is based on forces. Although we don't want to talk about, we don't say SDN anymore. We have a network application platform now. That's a new term. It's like application delivery controller. Right. Network application platform, I think is the term. Okay. But we're based on forces, uh, which is an ITF standard, and which we have since uh, extended a little bit. We just haven't gone back to the ITF and republished uh, some of the documentation. Yeah, that was the question I always had. It's totally out of scope of this podcast, but maybe you can give me a 30-second answer. What was wrong with forces that forced the people to go and invent OpenFlow? You got to ask the Stanford guys that because (laughs) I think the problem, maybe you need another podcast for this, is the challenge of sometimes dealing with big communities like the ITF. I believe the Stanford people may have felt they wouldn't have succeeded pushing something equivalent to OpenFlow at the ITF. My biased opinion is the is that forces is a much better approach to SDN than OpenFlow ever was. So there could be politics involved. That's why they wanted to invent their own, or they felt they will have more freedom, perhaps. Ah, so the usual not invented here syndrome that gave us IPv6 instead of CLNS. I am pretty sure there's some of that. But there's also the pragmatic part that if they wanted to push an agenda, the ITF, there's a lot more people with opinions there than if they did their own thing. 
they have the resources to do their own thing. So that's what happened. Forces at the same time, you know, the big vendors, there was no white box switching back in those days. Your protocol has to be accepted by Cisco or Juniper to be considered successful. So I chaired the working group for at its tail end, like for the last two years. You know, it's the standards bodies, politics as well. And the fact that control was done by big box vendors at the time. They controlled what goes in the box, therefore what goes in the market. And it wasn't to their interest for forces to succeed. Yeah, don't get me started on IETF politics. It took us three years to publish BGP security best practices. Stuff that everyone agreed makes sense, and yet it took us so long. Okay, don't get me started. Let's move on. But to just conclude that, look, it, does, it didn't serve the interests of the big box vendors at the time. That was a big drawback, more than the Stanford going and inventing OpenFlow. Okay, finally, Tom Herbert. I remember you from your Facebook times, and if I remember correctly, you were doing some crazy IPv6 stuff, right? And now you're at some startup. Yes, I'm at a startup called uh, Quantonium. We are pretty new, and we're looking at Network Edge, specifically some of the protocol work, networking to optimize uh, for low latency, security, reliability, uh, all the things that are going to be required in the network edge. So you can imagine that in kind of the upcoming world, there's going to be devices that are deployed closer and closer to the user for nothing else to reduce latency, but also reduce bandwidth throughput on backhaul networks. So we want to move devices closer to the user, which means to a large extent, we're going to start to see kind of compute nodes, mobile edge computing being embedded inside mobile networks. We're kind of asking, what does that world look like? What are the requirements? How do you interact with the network? How do hosts interact with the network? So along those lines, we are working on something called Network Edge OS, which defines this. And there is quite a bit of ecosystem type of considerations. So for instance, how do we work with the network to provide good service and say 5G when slices are in effect? So uh, that's kind of what we're doing. Uh, we're looking at this. It is quite a bit of Linux development, but more recently I've been looking at kind of how to leverage IETF or steer IETF in the internet, more along the lines of, of super low latency and devices uh, placed close to the user like this. Okay, another digression from what's supposed to be today's topic. When you talk about really low latency, what time units are we talking about? Order of milliseconds on the internet. And the example I use is imagine we have cameras at a traffic intersection that are monitoring the intersection, and we want these cameras to give real-time feedback to autonomous vehicles coming into the intersection. So for instance, maybe there's a truck parked and a child is running from behind that truck into traffic, and the autonomous vehicle coming down the road might not see that because the child's hidden by the truck but a camera on an opposing angle might see that. So what does it take for the camera to detect this potential hazard, child running into the traffic, to process that, send a signal to the autonomous vehicle telling it to apply its brakes and basically save a life? So that loop from detecting the hazard to having the, the vehicle stop, that's the critical latency. And what we're shooting for is to close that to about 40 milliseconds Right now, for a human, response time is, is really high. It's in the hundreds of milliseconds. Autonomous vehicle might take that down. But in this scenario, we want that loop to be real-time latency, about 40 or 50 milliseconds. 
the networking is only one component of that. And we really want to reserve as much time as we can for, say, processing the, the video from the camera. So it turns out the networking component needs to be down in the, the few milliseconds, which is really what is kind of being advertised by the emerging 5G standards of 3GPP. So effectively, this is bringing real-time latency to the internet. You can also imagine AR, VR. They have serious problems, even with slight amounts of latency in terms of, of jitter. So if you're looking through an AR device and there's even one or two millisecond delay when you turn your head with a picture, you might not detect that, but you get a type of headache. I forget what it's called, but you get a type of headache from that slight delay. So in certain applications, we have very large sensitivity to low delay. And these happen to be the, the applications that are emerging and, and what we want to optimize for. I have a question. I know this is off the topic, <laughs> the original topic, but low latency and time is something I've been spending a lot of time thinking about lately. And I'd be interested to know how you're actually measuring that. Like what granular level are you measuring the latency and how are you doing that? So the only thing that really matters is the latency of the application in some sense. So in my example of the intersection, the latency really is from the time that somebody detects the hazard to the time that the car applies the brakes. That's the critical latency. And that's not even all digital networking latency. For instance, there's a right. physics involved, mechanics involved about stopping a vehicle. And then the latency in the AR set, VR set, has a lot to do with human perception and, and the latency of the brain, basically. And I learned a you know, fundamental principle of, of computer networking and the computer industry in general. What matters in the end of the day is how people interact with the system, how users interact with the system. Sometimes we call that application latency. That's what matters. And one thing I have noticed is we can do fine grain optimizations in the networking stack. Sometimes people go wild trying to eliminate cache misses and, and make do micro optimizations. Those kind of things look really good when you run uh, a net perf test and you might show some good results, but it doesn't mean a thing if those don't translate into actual end user perceived latency performance gains. So we have to consider the system in a holistic sense. And actually, that feeds back into to what we're doing in Quantonium. It's not enough just to create a networking stack. It's not enough just to build a device, install it. Nowadays, you have to consider what is the actual application? What is the full ecosystem that you're putting these solutions into? How do you solve the whole world? And it's not even just latency or, or performance. It's also security and privacy, reliability, availability, just a whole long list of things. But I think this is where we are, and it's necessary because the world's evolved where these sort of critical applications, like the intersect traffic intersection case or AR, which is going to have you know serious industrial applications and emergency services applications, these are the critical applications. Now, how do we build the internet for that? So if I was measuring latency, I'd do it at every level, of course. I'd let, measure my networking stack, so we have a lot of experience with that. But I also need to go up to the application, to the system. And then, of course, we have to consider all the edge cases, what happens in the, the rainy day, what happens to latency. That's not good enough to be 99.9% .9 have good latency and 0.1% has bad latency. So there's a lot of constraints, and a lot of uh, considerations. But on the other hand, I think this also gives us a lot of opportunity to do really cool things. So that's why I'm kind of excited about it. 
No, it's an interesting problem space. And, and, you know, we've been thinking about that a little bit as well. Not quite as the, you know, we're focusing on mostly just the network side of it at this point, And then we're going to build out of that. But it's good that you're thinking about the entire stack because that's really what will matter at the end of the project. Or, you know, once you have something that's out there, you know, that's the experience of all of it averaged together rather than just the networking stack. But at some point, it would be interesting to know how you're doing some of the high frequency and deep latency testing and stuff on your actual network plane. I should mention that, so for Quantonium, we actually do have kind of a public initiative and then what we're doing internally. The public initiative, I I could probably talk a whole uh, seminar about. Uh, Hopefully I'll be able to give some more details about that in the the next coming months. We think that there's some fundamental things on the internet that we want to do in order to, I don't want to say improve the latency. I think it's more like bring the internet into the 21st century. That's actually what we're calling that initiative. And it's really along the lines of what we're talking about today. And I think some of the things that we'll be talking about for NetDev Conference certainly feeds into that. Right. So let's go back to NetDev Conference. You had the conference in July. You were discussing, as I hear, number of interesting topics. Let's start first with the question, what is this conference about and who should be going there and why would I want to go there? Well, this started out initially as just as about a kernel networking aspect of Linux. And it's only very specific to the kernel, but we've since been expanding. We're learning every teach conference what our users want. Fast forward to the Montreal uh, conference in July. We had three sessions. One is the first day is mostly educational. We saw we have tutorials. There was an IPsec tutorial, which described what the kernel would do, IKEA, the experts, the people who mostly wrote this code or are in, very deeply involved in this code, were giving this tutorial. There was an FRR tutorial. Unfortunately, it's only one day. The first day also involves uh, what we would call working group sessions or workshops, where people from different subsystems of the network, although still very heavy on the kernel, but some user space aspect of it. So you'll see a TC workshop, networking with ASICs. Tom had conference low latency, uh, a workshop on low latency. We had a buff from Ari Balakrishna of MIT on congestion management on wireless. So that's typically what day one is. Day two and three are talks. There's class of talks, which will be considered moonshot. Tom came up with these terms. <laughs> A moonshot is, you know, you're looking, I guess the right time will be looking at it from the moon. Is that right, Tom? That's actually a, kind of an industry term. I'm not sure Google coined it, but a moonshot is refers back to the days when we were trying to get to the moon. A big effort, far-reaching, may or may not be achievable, but, you know, dare to dream big, kind of what the moonshot is. So those are new ideas, typically not in the kernel or upstreamed anywhere. Then we have the nuts and bolts where it may be something that has already been deployed, but probably never documented before, or something that is very much related to what's happening in Linux and is going to be pushed forward in the near term. Who should go to this conference? Well, it used to be people who are mystified by the Linux networking. It actually, it used to be Linux kernel networking developers with anybody interested in that space. And we're sort of expanding now into user space, which we started doing in uh, NetDev in Montreal. And there is discussions that we may end up having to even further expand that into some more industry interaction. I may have missed something maybe Tom or Rupa could add to. So in one sense, either we're following the trends or making the trends in the industry, but 
Uh, for instance, programmability of devices is a big topic right now, obviously, in SDN, P4, and things like that. Uh, in the Linux world, BPF is kind of on fire, and we see that a lot in pretty much any of these conferences. So how do we use a programmable language that can be inserted in the kernel or in a device to get things done? And this becomes actually something which is more and more user-based, so the user could actually write low-level code in a safe environment. And we think there's going to be quite a bit of utility of this, and, and we'll see a lot of cases of this. So I think in the olden days, uh, one of the issues we had in Linux was it was so incredibly complex to do anything. Even to write a module required a lot of work, and then there was a fairly arcane process to submit that to the Linux community, and they would review it. Obviously, people may be somewhat leery of talking to maintainers who have been doing this for 30 years and they have a, a new idea. So uh, in some sense, I see things are becoming more uh, democratic in that way. And I think our conference is kind of mirroring that. It, it is opening up a little bit more. This was definitely founded in the Linux kernel space, uh, very much a kernel conference. But as Jamel said, it is expanding and it's still kind of core Linux, but we're trying to make it, you know, in a sense, how is Linux usable in this vein? How can people actually get what they want done without having to go through the complexity and the arcane processes of kernel development necessarily? So just to be clear, Linux is still the center of gravity here. It has to be centered around Linux. And in fact, in our website, we're clearly stating that this is not just about using your device to boot up Linux, and then you have your own external ways of implementing networking. It's about using the Linux network core whether it's for offloading or for applications, that is still the central theme. Ah, so the user space packet processing is sort of a bit out of scope. I guess DPDK-like solutions, right? Total kernel bypass is loud. I would have said that a year ago, but with the AFXDP, I don't see us probably having a DPDK session in our conference, but you can now bypass the stack with AFXDP, for example. Okay, we covered eBPF before in a little bit, and we talked maybe in one of the previous podcasts about XDP. So what is AFXDP? It's a way to map hardware offload in terms of, say, DMA ring. So the precursor to this was AF Packet. I don't know if you're familiar with AF Packet. No. TCP dump uses AF Packet to uh, grab raw packets of a network interface, typically. Okay, so it's programmable tap on a NIC. Right. Now you go directly to the DMA ring that's off the NIC hardware. So packets come in in its most raw format. Packets come in into the ring and user space gets them. The way XDP plays, hence the name AFXDP, is you could actually write small eBPF programs that will either do filtering or, in fact, intercept the packet and maybe with a whatever little processing, send it back out on the same port it came in or on another port. You could write, let's say, a little, the typical prototype sampled code is someone is writing a denial of service attack prevention tool or a small switching tool or a sanitizing tool where all the packets show up to have XDP, they take a look and then allow the packet to drop it. But the initial goal of XDP was to allow for mapping of these DMA rings to user space. So you are bypassing not just the Linux kernel, you are bypassing the NIC driver as well. The NIC driver is still involved. It's not quite bypassing the kernel. It's more like there's still a thin, very thin layer inside the kernel 
and we can direct uh, packets directly to user space. Then that differentiates it from something like DPDK, which is complete kernel bypass. And by this technique, we can actually switch packets. So we can either send them into the user space rings directly, or if the packet's supposed to be processed locally, we could process it through the kernel. The key part here is that even though it's exposing the rings to user space, the control path is still going through the kernel. So we don't have a completely separate stack, uh, separate management plane like we see with DPDK. So from that point of view, it's, it's an integrated solution, but provides all of the performance advantages that we're looking for. Does that give you access to other things that DPDK can't do that the kernel provides? Yeah, that's exactly the point. So for instance, okay. We don't have to send packets to user space. If you have a TCP connection, they can be processed from the same device. And this also means that AFXDP isn't really a hardware-specific thing. It's more like an API type of interface. So we can take any sort of device, doesn't even have to have special uh, hardware queues, and actually get pretty good emulation of this. So we can split some traffic directly into user space, some traffic directly into the kernel, and as Jamel pointed out, there we can put in a BPF program down in XDP to control the switching and how the distribution of packets happens. What's the line rate that you're able to process that at? I mean, can you do that with, like, say, a Mellanox 100 gig NIC at as close to line rate as it'll run? Is it directly related to what you're trying to do to it? In terms of just general performance, recently we actually did have a paper coming out I believe in SIGCOM on XDP, performance at 100 gigabits, we can drive, I think, full packet size without loss from one or two CPUs. So that's the base level of XDP performance. And that's by virtue of putting that down into the kernel next to the driver. If you're referring to getting the packets to user space, I'm not sure that they've done measurements on that, or, or maybe they have, I haven't looked into them. I wouldn't see that as being any different than DPDK in that case. Packets are being thrown onto a ring. It's a matter of the user space process actually processing them on the ring. If I may add to that, yeah, it's comparable to DPDK. That's the short answer. But hardware offload is still of value. And I know we have disagreements on this, but if you have a Mellanox which does 100 gig, you can still use the hardware offload and XDP as well. So I've always argued against FXDP in this XDP to say, look, if all you want to do is to drop the packets and if you have a few filters, you might as well just do it in hardware. It doesn't matter what the packet size is. You'll achieve line rate there. You okay. want to do a little bit more, then passing it on to the kernel or user space it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, but if you do it in hardware, then you become either hardware specific or you have to write an abstraction layer for different hardwares, right? There is an abstraction layer in Linux through TC for offloading filters and actions and schedulers lately. So AFXDP does not take that away. It does, it not. does not. Yeah, you can still have your hardware program to do hardware no. filtering before the kernel sees the packet. To me, it sounds like they have different applications, but they have some overlap, right? It sounds to me, and again, I'm but a novice in this area, but they do some similar things, but they really have different use cases yeah. as well. I, I, you can do a lot more in software. But if it's just basic functions of accepting or dropping packets or counting them, then, you know, and you want 100 gig wire rate at 64 byte packets, then, you know, you could do this stuff in hardware. A lot of uh, modern hardware ranging anywhere from Mellanox, 
to Netronom or whoever can do this in hardware. Right. We also see more instances where hardware is supporting a programmable API and language. So we have P4, but BPF is also emerging. So definitely Netronome has the ability to run BPF programs. In a perfect world, what we would obviously shoot for is I can write a BPF program that does uh, whatever packet dropping or optimizations I want. I should be able to run that in uh, software on my host or push that into the device. If we get to that point, then everything becomes interchangeable and we can't tell the difference between the, the behavior. It's just the performance and the cost. So I think that goes back to the, the world is becoming very, very programmable, even into the device. And we, we do need common abstractions uh, for that, like TC and, and BPF. And this is going to be a big win as we move forward, I think. Yeah, I can yeah. see that. This really reminds me of the, you know, in my experience of building highly customized BSD kernels to do really specific things, right? So if you're pulling out all the stuff you don't need, you're adding the tweaking and tuning for things you do need, and then you have a specialty system when you're finished. And this feels like a more, you know, network focused specific version of that to me. I could be way off on so that. Linux is trying to be very generic in this space, at least from a programmability point of view. As Tom points out, eBPF is one angle. It could be a good segue into the P4 discussion that happened at the conference where people are trying to use P4 to offload to hardware. So you, you could write a, a control application that will work on a VM and you strap in a Netronome card and you the same app will now offload to the Netronome card or to XTP some pieces. So there's hierarchies, basically. There's a hierarchy where things just run in software in the kernel, things that run at XTP level, things that run in the hardware, and performance, of course, scales up as you go down the stack. But the API is the same. So if I add a flower rule, for example, in TC, I, all I have to do is set a bit mask, a bit on the policy, and it gets offloaded to the hardware if the hardware is capable. Likewise, if I have an eBPF program that runs in software in the kernel, and if I have a Netronome card, I could take that same BPF program and offload it to the hardware, I believe unchanged. And now I get more performance out of it. So the architecture is, unlike what you described, a specialized BSD box, mm -hmm. Linux tries to be generic and covers all these ranges of possibilities. Yeah. Okay. And to add with the recent updates in with the ability to use kernel tables, like the kernel FIB table to with BPF programs, you get best of both worlds. Basically, if your XTP program cannot handle, does not want to handle the packet, it can still let the kernel, the rest of the stack, handle the packets. And also, if, for example, FRR can have populate the FIB with routes, and you could have an XTP program or a BPF program which could leverage or which could use the routing stack, the existing kernel routing FIB, to accelerate and punt it back to software if it cannot. So it's unlike DPDK, just provides best of both worlds. That's an interesting use case there. How is the performance in doing something like you just described? Is it essentially hitless or is it, you know, minor or is it noticeable or is it still sort of under development where, you know, you just, it varies? I would say it's hitless. I don't know of any numbers, published numbers. Maybe Tom can add. Uh, in the XDP paper, there was still some gap between XDP and DPDK. And it had less to do with the actual architecture. It had more to do with uh, use of huge pages and some of the caching techniques. But the good news is it's a very active area of development. The gaps are always being closed. The hardware offload of BPF is being optimized for that. Netronome has based their whole architecture on BPF. So my ex expectation is that uh, performance 
will continue to be improved, but we also get the functionality and the programmability of that, put all those together. I think we have a pretty good path and a pretty good solution right now. Okay, to recap, so what you have right now is the ability to install a small bytecode program very close to the interface card. And in there, you can decide whether you just want to forward or drop the packet, or if you want to punt the packet to the Linux kernel TCP stack, or whether you want to punt the packet to user space for additional processing. Is this about right? Yes, you got it. And you can offload with Netronome, if I got it correctly, BPF code directly into the NIC. Yes. And now there's this other standard, because why should we have one standard if we could have two called P4, and it's doing the same thing as BPF? I want just a step back. Not only, so for hardware that's capable of eBPF, like the Netronome, you could take a BPF a piece of code and inject it into the NIC and it will work. There's other hardware that has TCAMs, for example, the maybe as old as Intel uh, I40Es. Yeah, the 10 gig Intel, yeah. That use a TC interface to offload. So you write a policy the same way you would write that policy to run the kernel, except you'd set a flag which says, I want this to be offloaded to the hardware. So there's more than one way to do it. And P4, we can talk about P4. Yeah, so why do we need yet another way of doing it? That reminds me of the XKCD comic about standards. I think sometimes the use cases are slightly different. I don't know how you take a BPF program, and I don't know how much time we have to discuss this, and map it to TCAM semantics or to someone who's putting the table on SRAM. or. Ah, okay. Right, so it's a bit tricky. The, the instruction set is not the same. TCAMs have existed for a long time. People know how to deal with them. They have drivers that deal with this stuff. So TC kind of fits a better, better that way. Okay, so to oversimplify to the extreme, uh, TCAM is not Turing complete. Yes. <laughs> All right, so what can you do with P4 that you cannot do with BPF, for example? So the question is, why do we need more than one facility? You have to realize that P4 came out of a completely different world. That came out of the the router vendor world, and they latched on to that. So it was was coming from a completely different angle. And P4 itself is actually a language. It's not really a bytecode. As a language, it has a lot of the same attributes. BPF doesn't have loops. P4 really doesn't have loops. They can do tail calls. So there's a lot of commonality. Uh, But the main difference is that BPF is a bytecode. So in some sense... You can compile P4 into BPF, but it's hard to go the other way around. So if we get to the point where we can generically compile any P4 program into BPF, then in some sense, BPF becomes a more generalized, broader program, right ones run anywhere kind of abstraction. Uh, P4 would just be one language. We're not going to convince the the routing community to eliminate P4. They've gone down that road for a while now. But what we can do is is kind of merge these worlds and say, okay, if you want to use P4 from BPF point of view, that's just another language on top of BPF. It could be restricted C, it could be P4. But the point is, if you you have a compiler and the compiler does good optimizations into BPF, that BPF becomes the thing that we actually run on the hardware. So the hardware is actually interpreting the BPF. So uh, that would be a, a pretty good model. And I think that there's room in the world for different variants 
the use cases are slightly different, but also the backgrounds and why they exist are also different. And we shouldn't be just arbitrarily saying that one is better than the other. I think it's better to try to adapt to this world, try to provide the best value. Tom, VI is better than Emacs. <laughs> oh, okay. Let's move on. I happen to agree with that. But... <laughs> so BPF is becoming like the next generation P-code from UCSD, if anyone remembers those days. Actually, can I add a point to what Tom said? There are two angles. Eventually, it boils down. If you want to put P4 on top of the kernel or within the kernel, again, you still have to deal with this, what you call the Turing complete versus the TCAM world, right? Because P4 is essentially... At the end of the day, it's match actions. There's still just a, you know, a pipeline of match actions where TC already had a fit for this. It was already doing this before P4 existed or before OpenFlow existed. So you could model P4 as well with a TC pipeline. And depending on what the hardware can offload, you can also take a P4 program and output a BPF. There's a few papers that have been written by, I can't remember the guy's name, but from VMware which who compares what they found with eBPF and P4 translation. So I wouldn't call it exactly mature yet, but that's the whole point of our conference is people come there and they speak and discussions happen. So if you watch the TC workshop, you'll see a discussion on this topic. Okay, and finally, there was one other interesting thing that I found in another workshop, and this is the Switch ASIC API. When we were last discussing how Cumulus Linux works, there is this custom user mode driver that takes the kernel data structures and translates that into ASIC data structures and programs the ASIC using Broadcom SDK, if I remember correctly. Yes. Uh, now it looks like we're finally getting to a point where the API to program the ASICs may be standardized, right? So... What's happening in the Linux community is the API, in-kernel API for switch ASIC drivers that are open source and are in the kernel. So what Cumulus uses is the user space Netlink API to program hardware because we still, in this world, we still have some vendors who have proprietary SDKs and user space. But Linux has been doing hardware acceleration since ages, and Linux always has had an abstraction in the kernel for in-kernel drivers. And today, the only switch ASIC driver that is in kernel is Mellanox. So there's a lot of work that has been going in the kernel community to build that API. And many other small device hardwares are also leveraging that API. That is one part of it. And the other part of it to support switch ASIC development or uh, running uh, Linux better on switch ASICs, we also have you know extended uh, networking support that's been going on, like, for example, PBR. And this workshop that you pointed out, I was trying to highlight some of those advancements. And since we had the FRR participation as well in the conference, I was talking about how FRR implements policy-based routing on Linux using Linux IP rules subsystem and how you know the internal switch ASIC API and the Netlink API both have been extended to be able to offload that to hardware. The last time I look at the Switch ASIC API, it was basically layer two stuff, right? No, there is uh, layer three stuff as well. Well, I said the last time I looked. Okay. <laughs> so you added layer three stuff in the meantime. Yes. So we have layer two, layer three. We still need PBR and ECHOs, right? 
Eccles, Eccles are there. Is there. Yeah. Eccles, you can use TC or we at Cumulus, we use NetFilter today. But yeah, TC has hardware offload APIs uh, that drivers can use to offload to hardware. It's the same API as uh, offloading on a NIC. Yeah. And that's what the, since even we started with making Switch ASIC look like a NIC card with 48 or 128 ports, we have been leveraging much of the NIC hardware acceleration APIs in the kernel. Yeah, even today, the effort is to keep all the hardware abstraction seamless or similar or consistent for NICs or for switches and yeah, all networking hardware. So you effectively have an API today in Linux kernel that could allow you to program most of the forwarding functionality that we see, let's say, in the data center switches. I don't want to go to routers and what they do. Yes, definitely. A recent one was eVPN, and uh, eVPN fit right into the Linux yeah, ecosystem, basically using the neighbor system and bridging VXLAN. So how many hardware vendors support? Today, with Cumulus, as you know, we use the Netlink API to offload, um, and we are able to offload on Broadcom and Mellanox. And Mellanox also has a in-kernel driver which is still under development, an open source a driver to offload directly from the kernel to hardware. So, yeah, I would say it's just uh, Broadcom and Mellanox at this point. Well, today. there's actually a, a small number of these small router devices that typically run OpenWRT are now surfacing the yeah. support of these APIs as well. Yeah, that's true. You know, Yvonne doesn't want to talk about the routers, but I do. <laughs> Can you expand a little bit on what the routing support is and on what class of hardware? I know that there's some small stuff. What's the biggest box that I can do reasonably complicated routing on? Biggest box with reasonably... So today, the recent one was, if you look at our HCL, you will see all the Broadcom latest hardware, right? So it would be Tomahawk and Trident 3. And Mellanox has Spectrum. The next generation is Spectrum 2. Spectrum 2 is not out yet, but yes, we are getting ready for it. And also the next generation Broadcom. Okay. So where I'm going with this is the same place I always go, which is what could a service provider reasonably consider as a time frame for getting a white box that has this hardware support for layer three, you know, complicated layer three, like full table, reasonable buffers, and also have this in-kernel offload and, and protocol support. Is that two years out? Is that, how long yeah. is that? If you're asking me for the Cumulus roadmap <laughs> for these boxes, yeah. <laughs> Not necessarily Cumulus, just, you know, let me rephrase my question. Do you foresee this as being a reasonable option for medium, any size, you know, medium to large carrier to use as a routing platform? Yes, definitely. And actually, uh, I'll talk, about it from the Linux kernel involvement or community uh, work that's been going on. So we have been working on scaling, you know, scaling the bridge FDB database or routing database for these large scale chipsets that Broadcom and even Spectrum do provide. So there's work going on in the Linux kernel community to do all that, right? To get ready for these uh, large scale routing FIB databases and so on. But on the timelines for actually us shipping a product for the SP market, it's a few years down the lane. I can't say for exactly when, but Linux is ready. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, uh, that's really see... the question I was asking yeah. is, you know, yeah. is that in scope for 
what the Linux community is thinking about. Because I know, you know, from the service provider point of view, we're all waiting for this. I mean, this is something that is desirable to, uh, you know, a fairly good size amount of, of the of think- service provider communities. Your biggest problem may end up being a political one with do the vendors, the big box guys want this to happen? Do the chip vendors who are, you know, they have to answer to the big box vendors? Like, I don't want to mention any company names, but. Well, no, no. I mean, that's the way it always is, right? It's right, the big right. box vendors so, sort of get to decide, but it's what the customers ask for. My view is there's nothing wrong. Linux is ready. It's, you know, the push has to come from some big guy has to show up and says, I want this and they'll all jump. Right. Melanox seems to be ready as far as I can tell. Like they're pushing patches and changes. And but the majority of those features, Rupo know better than me, but seem to be in good shape. Yeah, I think it's just gets needs to get on the roadmap and we have to decide the time when we want to support this. But I think from Linux perspective, I don't see any limitations right now. Soon we'll be going to a scalable routing API, which is in the works and which is being submitted by David Ahern. I don't see any bottlenecks from Linux perspective. It's just about having to support that first chip. This is all great news. Have a go-to market, yeah. This is more or less what I expected to hear. When I saw Mellanox Networking Field Day in January or whatever, I asked a lot of these same questions. And I got some kind of cagey answers that, you know, reading the tea leaves there made me think, this is probably going to happen. I just didn't, you know, they couldn't, they weren't going to come out and say it. So... Again, I think there's a market for this kind of thing, and, and I'm personally interested in seeing how well it performs. Put it this way. I mean, would you rather have a babble of APIs, aka SDKs from vendors? You know, two Broadcom chiefs may have end up using two different features to update the FIB. Or would you rather have one ring to rule them all, which is the Netlink API for updating FIBs? And then, you know, underneath there, it doesn't look any different than a, updating an ACL on a NIC, right? It depends on the driver. Yeah, I mean, abstraction layer is important here, I think. It's you know, critically important, really, from an operational standpoint. And then Linux already has it. It's already been done for years now. It's And they're mapping to, from these data structures to hardware interfaces. Yes, while there may be a slight capacitance problem, it's there. Good to know. Excellent. Okay, so let's wrap it up right here with the good news. Before we end, when is the next conference? Where is it going to be? And what will be on the agenda? So it's going to be in the first day of spring in Prague, the Czech Republic. That's going to be the 20th, I think, of March to the 22nd. Hmm, I just might drop by. Oh, no, I can't. I'm a trooper. Ah, too bad. In terms of content, I would expect more along the lines of what we've been talking about. But I think as Jamel kind of alluded to, we'll, we'll probably expand the scope a little bit. Personally, I'd like to see more involvement from mobile providers. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff that has potential crossover. And these worlds have kind of been separate, like looking at how mobile and IETF interact and starting to see that there's some incentive to look more, at least from the mobile point of view, at generic solutions and open solutions. So we see a world going more open protocol, open source. Linux is, you know, most likely kind of a center point of all of that. So I think you'll see more along those lines, programmability, but also open solutions and how Linux is uh, playing a part of that. Perfect. Thank you. And if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Do you blog somewhere? You probably have Twitter accounts, your own GitHub, I would assume. 
Well, let's start with Rupa. I have a Twitter account. I'm not active on it, but it's underscore underscore Rupa. And you can email me. My email is out there, the Linux kernel mailing list. Email is definitely the best way to reach me. It's rupa at Cumulus Networks or rupa.prabhu at gmail.com. Thanks. Jamal? Yeah, email guy. So it's easy to find my email. I do have Twitter, but I am known as Yerba Macha. We'll put that in the show notes. <laughs> the only role that account exists is to blindly retweet uh, things that come out of the conference. Okay. And Tom? Tom at quantonium.net. And also, we do have a GitHub with some of the public code and uh, white papers on, I think it's GitHub, uh, Quantonium. Just search for that. Yet again, thanks a million for this update. Finally, Nick, where can people find you? Oh, I'm around. I've got the blog that I visit occasionally, forwardingplane.net. And I'm on pretty much all the social medias is at Baralio, LinkedIn, GitHub, Twitter, all that nonsense. And I'm Ivan Pepelnyak, and you can find me on ipspace.net or on Twitter as at ioshints. Hope you enjoyed this update, and we'll try to do a deeper dive into most of the interesting topics we mentioned today. Thank you, and have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Gone Wild. If you want to learn more about software-defined networking, network automation, and related topics, visit sdn.ipspace.net and explore our courses, books, webinars, and podcasts.